Well, dear friends, let us turn now to God's holy word for our instruction. We turn to the book of 2 Samuel and the chapter 2. The book of 2 Samuel and the second chapter. The Lord help us as we come to his word. 2 Samuel chapter 2. We arrive this morning in our week-by-week executive consecutive expository ministry through his word in this chapter. May the Lord help us, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word here this day. This is the word of God. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Go to Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahonoim, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite, and his men that were with him. Did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the man of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the man of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have shown this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you this kindness, because ye have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant, For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. And Abner, the son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. 
And they arose and went over by the number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And they caught every one, his fellow, by the head, and thrust the sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. And there was a very sore battle that day, and Abner was beaten, and the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there was there were three sons of Zeruah there, Joab and Abishai and Asiel, and Asiel was as light as a foot as a wild robe. And Asiel pursued after Abner, and in going he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asiel? And he answered him, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asiel would not turn aside from following of him. And Abner said unto Asiel, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab, my brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib. But the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asiel fell down and died, stood still. Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner. And the sun went down when they were, gone, when they were come to the hill of Armah that lieth before Gia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of an hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? And Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou had spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up, every one from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. And Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Manaim. And Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants nineteen men and Asahel. But the servants of David had smitten Benjamin of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that three hundred and three score men died. And they took up Asahel 
and buried him in the sepulchre of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at break of day. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless it to us, bless that public reading and the expounding of it to the glory of his name and to the good, dear friends, of our needful and never-dying souls, even here in this place today. May the Lord come and bless us. Let us draw near to our God in prayer, the only God, the one true living God, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, dear congregation, dear friends, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you in your hearing, there in first or Second Samuel and the chapter 2. We arrive in this chapter as we go through our verse-by-verse study of the Word of God, and particularly here now, the book of Second Samuel. And I remind you of what I said last week, First and Second Samuel are but one book in the original Hebrew Masoretic text. We are coming now to that period in David's life where he is ascending or going to ascend to the throne. Wicked King Saul has died, and we saw last week in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel that David has refused to attain the crown, that is, the crown of Israel, by unlawful means. He wants to do everything right and honorably before the Lord. David is not a hasty man. He is having to learn day by day that everything happens in the Lord's time. And uh, God does us good while there is a period of waiting. And there are seven years, in fact, a long time, seven and a half years, before David now will become king. One would have imagined that this would have been almost instantly, as soon as Saul dies, David will become king. Well, David is anointed, has been anointed by Samuel the prophet, but Samuel is now long gone. Saul has just been killed, as was told him, but here now is David. And remember, as I said last week, and as I said just a moment ago, David has refused to attain the crown by unlawful means. He refused, remember, even when Saul was alive to slay King Saul, when Saul tried to kill him, because he recognized that Saul was the anointed, and unless God removes Saul by his will and by his power, either by battle or some other means, David was not going to become king in an unlawful way. It had to be God's way. And then we also saw last week, remember in First uh, Samuel chapter or First Second Samuel chapter one, that. Even David refused to reward a man who claimed to have slain Saul. Of course, the man was lying, because we have the true account of what really happened in 1 Samuel chapter 31. What really happened was Saul ended up falling on his sword. Saul's armor-bearer refused to do that. And the strange thing is that the armor-bearer ended up doing the same thing as Saul. But David even refused to reward that man that claimed to 
kill Saul because David didn't want to be seen, first of all, as being one who paid his way to the top. And uh, he is, in fact, avoiding all appearances of evil and will not continue in a way that others might think, well, if they do certain things for David, they can win his favor. This man was coming for reward, remember, as we thought last week. He thought David would reward him. But what was he rewarded with? Death. Because he did that which was sinful, and David was the rightful heir. Jonathan is dead. There's another son here, but we read here, Abner, the military general, makes him king. And he should not have been made king. Now, he wasn't king proper. He was king, this son here, over 11 tribes. So he's not really recognized in the true and proper sense as the king of Israel. Nevertheless, he was king over the other tribes. Now, here is David. In this chapter, this Amalekite has been slain, and uh, David really is setting forth before the whole of the nation of Israel is David is not a man that can be bought. David is a man of principle. David is a man of integrity. And the Lord and his laws are not to be meddled with. Justice must be served. Life is a very serious thing. Although this man lied, David took him at his word. And he suffered the just punishment for treason and or claiming to be treasonous, should we say. Now, as I said, there are a good number of years to go now before David is crowned king. And what we see in this chapter, first of all, prayer. That is the very first thing we see with David. Although he knows that he is anointed to be king, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't assume power at all. It must be from the Lord. The powers that have be are ordained of God, and everything must happen in God's time. And although he has been anointed by Samuel the prophet, as I said, who is now long gone, we find here David seeking the Lord in prayer for direction. Notice verse 1. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, that is, the Lord said, unto Hebron. And we notice here David proceeds to go up to Hebron. He's presently, remember at Ziklag, he didn't fight that war with Saul at Gilboa. But here in verse 2 we read that David goes up with two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. Now, you might be asking the question, where on earth is Michal, who we mentioned last week? Where is this wife Michal? Well, she is mentioned in the next chapter, notice chapter 3, and the verse 13 and 14 there. And uh, we read these words, and he said, this is Abner, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face, and so on. So you read more about Michal. Now, 
We'll answer that question perhaps next week why she is not here. But she's not mentioned here in this chapter 2. Nonetheless, what we observe here in the first place is that while David was told by the Lord that he would be king, he has to wait the Lord's time. And we learn this lesson over and over and over again, don't we, in the Word of God. We must wait upon the Lord. And those that wait upon the Lord will not lack any good thing. And as we read in Isaiah, Israel's strength was to, what, wait upon the Lord. My strength is to sit still, not to go for help to Egypt or to those other nations when they were being assailed by the Assyrians and the Syrians. But their strength was to wait on the Lord, and that is exactly what David is doing here. He's waiting on the Lord. You see, the Lord didn't give him a time. He didn't give him a a, a place where it would all take place. Here, David is just seeking the Lord's counsel, his guidance. And this is a lesson to us all. We must learn to wait on the Lord. Sometimes we're faced with two decisions in our life. And we have to ask, which is the right choice to make? And I would say this, it is always that which most honors God. It is always that which most honors God. Two decisions might seem right, but which one of those two are most God-glorifying? You know, two things will seem right. It's always good advice. What is that which will bring most glory and honor to God? And also, you could add to that, because that which will bring most glory to God will also be the most beneficial to our own souls. That's what we've got to think about, particularly as Christians, not our pocketbook, not our wallet, not our bank account. It is that which will most benefit our souls and ultimately which will glorify God in our lives. That is sure guidance from God's Word because we are told specifically whether we eat, whether we drink, whatsoever we do is to be done to the glory of God. We may not know answers in a given situation, in a situation We may not know clear direction. We're given two options, sometimes maybe even three. But what is most God-glorifying? Sometimes we're in a situation where two decisions, we can make this way or that way, none of them are sinful, but what is most God-glorifying? Now, if you turn with me just to James chapter 1, and you notice there in the verse 5, James is writing to the persecuted church, to the tribes that are scattered abroad, these true believers. And he says this, and I want us to to think very briefly. Here David is asking the Lord in faith for wisdom and guidance. What should he do? What is next? James says in James 1.5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now notice these words. But let him ask in faith, 
not wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Now we have to ask the question, what does it really mean to ask in faith? Well, first of all, when it comes to faith, we must understand that God is. Without faith, we're told, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must know that God is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, there's the key. Diligently seeking God. Not seeking God for your own ends. But as I said earlier, seeking God for his glory. And so when you're seeking, you're actually seeking for not yourself. You're seeking for God. You're seeking God's glory. You're seeking God's will. Why? Because you are His. That's who you are. And you must never forget that, as I must never forget it. I belong to Him. I am my beloved, and He is mine forever and forever. And we must seek Him. So what I'm asking for when I ask God is to actually ask for God because I am his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, doesn't he? He says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, which is the gift of God, not of works, it's not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then Paul uses these words, he says, for ye are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Not that you should just hear them, but you should walk in those good works. David, God has begun a good work in his heart. And David is to walk by faith, and he is to ask for wisdom. And James says, God does not abrade. When his child comes to him, he doesn't say, what are you doing asking me for faith? How dare you ask me? How dare you ask me for wisdom? How dare you ask me for greater faith? How dare you ask me to walk out? No, he gives liberally to all that come to him. So what does it mean to ask in faith? It means, first of all, that I must treat God's will as the focal point of my life. The focal point of my life. You know, many people want to ask God not to do God's will, but just to find out what God has to say, and then they say, well, I'll have a think about it. God, tell me what I should do, and I will then have a think about it. That's not asking in faith. Let not such a man think, says James, that he shall receive anything, because he is a double-minded man, Literally, the word double-souled, dipsukos, is the word double-souled. It's like he has got two hearts. He's not sincere. We're thinking with the children this morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Sincerity. So when you ask for wisdom, you are primarily coming to God with that one desire to honor Him. And whatever the answer is, you are prepared to do it. You are determined to do it. It's not, I'll have a think about it. I'll debate it. 
I'll decide and feel whether it's right or not. No, I must do it. You see, the point is, for the Christian, God's will is not an option. It's not an option at all. But it is something I must do. Paul says, does he not, to the Romans, he says, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You ask in faith, and you don't do that, it's sin. Something's been revealed to you, you don't do it. You know, much of the convulsions, much of the problems in the church are not because people don't know the truth. The problem is people don't do the truth. That's, that's part, that's, I think, by and large, the trouble. They don't submit to God's Word. They don't submit to doctrine. They don't submit to truth. So if we ask for wisdom, you've got to, first of all, ask yourself, do you really want to know the truth, and do you really want to do God's will? That's a question you've got to ask, no matter what it is. You know, some people make a really big thing about guidance, and they sound super spiritual, but they're not really prepared from the start to do whatever God says. It's a big issue, isn't it? James says this is a double-minded man. So, look here. The Lord directs David to Hebron. Seems the wrong place to go. One would have thought, David, you're anointed king. You go around announcing it to everybody. But David doesn't do that. Humble soul waits on God. The notice in verse 4. You notice that as he goes to Hebron, Judah acknowledges David's rightful kingship. And the men of Judah came, this is when he goes up to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, wonderful. Here's a small token, again, of the Lord's goodness. As a man waits upon the Lord, he sees a small token of the Lord's blessing. And they told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. Now, remember the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they, they just mourned what the Philistines did to Saul. Treated him terribly. Remember how his head was cut off and he was paraded from place to place and there in the temple of Dagon and in other places as well. And they did terrible things to Saul, things which he feared that they might even do when he was alive. But remember how the men of Jabesh Gilead went and they were brave, valiant men. And they retrieved Saul's body and the bodies of his two sons that were with him. And they brought back the bodies. But as we thought, they, they burned the bodies, which we said was wrong, because that's not scriptural. But nonetheless, there was a valiantness, there was a braveness. And David acknowledges that goodness and that kindness shown to Saul and his sons. You see... Even here now, even after Saul is dead, we're thinking how David is still kind to the house of Saul. How good he is. And we see here, in the first place, how quickly Judah is to acknowledge him as king. But by the way, not all Israel acknowledge David as king at this point. 
And we don't see here David kicking up a fuss and acting like a baby. No, he has a sober mind by all of this. Now you notice in the verse 11, it's still another seven and a half years. Verse 11. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Long time, seven and a half years. So although David was dead, uh, Saul was dead, David had a very long wait still to be king. And this teaches us a, a great lesson, doesn't it, in patience, waiting on the Lord, and a great deal in providence. And you, you see how kindly David deals with... Uh, those who Saul protected. And David doesn't ever want to intimate or, 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 or give the idea that he was ever a, an enemy of Saul, how he was kind to Saul. And friends, you know, we may even have those people that are unkind to us amongst those who profess to be Christians. We should never retaliate. You know, we should, we should never be backbiting. We should be kind. Learn from David. Do good to all men, especially the household of faith. There are times, and look, there are things that are going on that are clearly wrong, and we must call out sin and doctrinal error as error. But let us be careful. Don't go and cross the line and have a retaliative spirit or a vindictive spirit in your heart. Beware of bitterness in the heart. Yes, call out sin, but be gracious, friend, in all that you do. You know, bitterness is like a cancer. It's like acid in the stomach. It'll just eat you up and make you a very bitter and unproductive person as a Christian. So he's having to learn patience, just as Moses had to learn patience. Forty years. Moses spent in Midian, didn't he? Of course, a lot of that was his own doing, after slaying that Egyptian. But the Lord had to very patiently teach him. And along the way, the Lord sanctifies us during the waiting period. He sanctifies the soul. Let me just say, the long-life process of sanctification in God's children includes this process of learning to wait on the Lord patiently. Because what is the Lord doing? He's refining us in the very process, isn't he? Waiting on the Lord. He's teaching us patience. As we read in James, how let patience have her perfect work. Patience is a door to grace of faith, and we must exercise patience. If you just turn to uh, Psalm 32, it's the Psalm of David there. In the verse 8, David by the Spirit says, in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Now notice this. This is the Lord speaking, but through David. And David has experienced this in his life. And here are two things to avoid. Notice the verse 9, Psalm 32, verse 9. Be not as the horse or as the mule. Two different characteristics. The horse wants to race ahead. The mule, stubborn. We say he or she is as stubborn as a mule. 
The horse wants to race ahead. And sometimes that's how we are. We can be impetuous, impatient. But sometimes when the Lord clearly reveals something to us, we can be stubborn. He says, Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. And then we read this, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. You see, this is what David is doing. He's trusting in God. David might be inclined to think, Oh, I haven't been recognized as king. God's true to his word. He never lie. Sometimes we just have to wait. It's all in the Lord's time. We read in Lamentations 3.25, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. And that is exactly what David is doing here. He's waiting on the Lord. Now secondly, notice what we see in this passage. There are a number of lessons. The second lesson we learn is prudence and sincerity do go together. David is sincere with these men when he addresses the men of Jabesh-Gilead, but he's also being wise at the same time. He's being prudent in what he says, but he is also being sincere. Now, this seems to be a very strange thing today because, you know, you've heard people say, well, the politicians, you can't trust them. And by and large, that may be the case. You know, they seem to say all the things we want to hear, but will they carry out the things they promise? Are they really sincere? Well, David is both wise in what he says here, but he is sincere. And we might hardly think that this is possible today, because so many people are insincere. But David truly is sincere when he speaks about the goodness that they have shown to Saul's house. He's not being a politician, my friends. Because David was good to Saul, wasn't he? David proved it from his life. He was good to Saul. He was a true man after God's own heart. Notice, and David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, your Lord that is, here as we see, Saul, even unto Saul, and have buried him. He is acknowledging the kindness that they have shown to Saul even after his death. Even this, this king who wanted to kill David. You see that? And now the Lord showed kindness and truth unto you. They were not... Let's get something straight here. These men simply honored the king. Now the scriptures say, honor the king. Give honor to whom honor is due. Now we acknowledge that the king was ungodly. But it was the right thing to do to show respect, wasn't it? And they showed respect because this king represented the children of Israel who God brought out of Egypt. The king represented, as it well should have been, that representative of God's people. And to dishonor the king would be to dishonor God. And David said, you did good. 
This was kindness shown not only to the king, but you honored the Lord in this. And the Lord honor thee for the way that you have gone about this and brought the bodies back. Now notice, it would have, you know, if he had brought up the subject of burning the bodies and everything else, it probably would have been, wouldn't have been wise. They didn't think about it. Many of these people were practicing some of the things that the pagans were doing. They would not have been expedient at this time. But he's still sincere, isn't he, in what he's saying. This is a kindness you have shown to Saul's house. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened and be ye valiant. Now notice what he says, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. Now what he is saying here is true. He's not buttering them up. He's saying, you know, you've honored the king, but now Judah have made me king. And he's simply being sincere. But he's also being prudent at the same time. He's not saying, because they knew that Saul hated him. He's saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to look out for you. You see that? This was wise. And these two things can exist in the Christian. Both, should we say, um, sincerity and wiseness. Some people are very unwise. You know, they just say, well, I speak my mind. Well, sometimes, (laughs) let me just say, it's not wise to just say the first thing that comes into your head. You're a fool. If you just sometimes think the first thing that comes into your head, you've got to walk wisely. And David is simply doing that. And he's commending all that they did for Saul. And he's promised to do them good. You see, David himself can say all this because he was good to Saul himself, wasn't he? He's not being a hypocrite here. Therefore let your hands be strengthened, verse 7, and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. Now, he is now anointed king, or anointed me king over them, that is over Judah. Something else, now there's a rival. And we could put over this next section here, verse 8, to the verse 10. Old enemies die hard, don't they? There's an old enemy here, what's his name? Abner. Do you remember this was the man? Remember when David went into the camp of Saul, and there was Abner, his armor-bearer, supposed to be protecting him. And David takes Saul's javelin, and he takes his cruise of water. The men are in a deep sleep. The Lord sent them into a deep sleep. David takes those two things, the cruise of water and the javelin, and then goes back to the other side of the mountain and cries out to Abner and tells him how he should have been a lot more diligent in protecting Saul. And here he is, Abner. And he's an old enemy of David. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. So Saul had other sons. He had two that died in the last battle, but he is next in line here, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maimon and made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty 
years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years But the house of Judah followed David. So very clear there. David is king over Judah, but this other man over the other tribes. Now, why has this man here, Abner, done this? Well, first of all, he's protecting his own interests. Think of it. He's the military general, and maybe he's even fearing David, protecting his own interests, so he makes one of Saul's sons king. But that's folly. Did he seek the Lord? He just jumped at it because he's protecting his own interests. And this man will lead lead Israel into great civil war, as we will see in this chapter, but also it'll lead to his own demise and death. Now all this happens because of Abner, Saul's general, who, by the way, was Saul's cousin. We know that from 1 Samuel 14 and verse 50. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahanoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz, and the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. So we're told there, Saul's uncle. Now he makes this young man king, but this young man, Ishbosheth, is rather a weak character, a, a bit of a pushover and he, he really just does Abner's bidding, and Abner acts as a warlord, really, throughout this time. And really, we could say Abner had no regard for Samuel, because remember, Samuel anointed David as king. He had no regard for God. And my friends, that's a woeful thing, to have no regard for God. God has his anointed king, and what we will think about here in this passage, we must always plug what we're reading, what does this tell us about Jesus Christ? Whenever we come to the Scriptures, we've got to say, what are we learning? The point is this. Abner was not submissive to the Lord's anointed. And we don't just look at David. We look beyond David to the eternally anointed king because From David's line, from David's lineage would come the Lord Jesus. He had no concern for God. You see this man, Abner? He's out for himself. And so he makes this young man king, who isn't quite the second king. And the reason is because not all the tribes are subject to him. Now, There are a number of lessons here as we come to this passage. We pick up at the verse 12 there. And Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maonaim to Gibeon. Now what we notice here in the first place is a terrible, terrible conflict now arises between the other tribes who are on... Abner's side, and Abner's a man just doing this all out of pride and self-preservation to keep his wealth and his position, and that of David's people. And you notice that David is, there's another man here that is really representing David, Joab. By the way, Joab here is David's nephew. 
the son of Zeruah, verse 13. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. So these two sides come together, and there is this conflict building up, notice, and met together by the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, one on the right side, one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. So really what we have here is a standoff. And both sides send 12 men, we could say 12 champions, out to sort of settle matters. Who, and here's the big issue, who is the real king? Who is the real king in all of this? You see, Israel is divided at this time, isn't it? Judah and the others. But remember what the Lord said in Genesis chapter 49, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Judah shall have the reign and the rule. And out of the tribe of Judah shall come the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The real king shall come from Judah. And all the godly line came from Judah. We know this until Jesus Christ came. Now, Abner, you notice what happens at this pool, there's this standoff. Twelve men from both sides come, and Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. Now, this is not a play battle. It may have seemed like that at first, but these men go out, and you notice they, they end up stabbing each other to death. And it's a complete draw. It's, we could say, a dead draw. All 24 men die. You notice the passage? And they, verse 16, And they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side, so they fell down together. Wherefore the place was called Helkath Hazarum, which, by the way, if you look at the marginal reference there, it means field of the strong men. All these men die. We saw, remember, in the last chapter how the mighty have fallen. But see these men here. Well, this should be speaking to them. Something is radically wrong in all of this. Who is the real king? Abner and his side have not waited on the Lord. We have this young man, Ashiel, king now. And uh, what we see is, after this, it's a dead draw, but now a full-scale battle rises on that day, verse 17, and there was a very sore battle that day. Both sides come out against each other, and we know from the figures as we read the end of this passage that Abner's side suffer far greater defeat than David's side or Joab's side. And we notice during this conflict, Verse 18, there were the three sons of Zeruah there, Joab and Abishai and Asiel. And we read there that Asiel was as light of foot as a wild robe. This man was fast. And what does he decide to do? He decides in verse 19 and so on further to go after this military general, Abner. He wants the trophy. He wants to be the victor. And then we notice, you come down to the verse 20 there, of course this young man was out of his league, fighting a very experienced military man, 
and he was no match. Although this young man was light on his feet, he didn't have the skill of the sword and certainly probably didn't have the strength that Abner has. And Abner warns him several times. He says, go and get another young man's armor. To have a man's armor was to have his army as a trophy that you killed him in battle. And the man refuses. This young man says, no, no. He goes out against Abner, and we read here that Abner thrust him right through underneath the fifth rib there, and he falls down dead. He warned him, didn't he? Don't come out against me, but he goes, and that young life is taken. And it came to pass, we read there, he said, Verse 22, And Abner said again to Ashiel, Turn aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? What Abner realized at this point is, if I kill you, you see, you've got to realize Abner's facing a real problem here. If he kills this young lad, everybody's going to be after him. But who started it? Abner! You see that? Who started this? Abner! Abner made this young man king. Abner calls out the battle of the 24 men, all die. Now Abner has to think, is it my life or this young man's life? And he chooses his life. And what he knows this, I must kill this man, but if this man comes after me, Joab and his brothers and Judah are going to be after my blood now. He realizes that it means great trouble. Although Abner was right in saying to this young man, turn around, stop, he was wrong in starting this whole war. Do you see that? It's vital to see that. Now here's the big issue. It, it starts because Abner won't bow down to the real king. Will he? And that, let me say, is the problem with so many in the church. They won't bow down to the real king. Abner was doing this all out of self-interest, and people do things out of self-interest. Sadly, we all are guilty of this. All the convulsions, all the problems in churches boil down to this one thing. It's not that we don't know the truth. The problem is we don't submit ourselves to the anointed king, to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. That is the baseline, baseline problem, friends, in all of our hearts. We do not yield to Jesus Christ. That is the big issue, isn't it? And so we notice that he slays him, the man falls down, but notice the verse 23b. The end it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asiel fell down, and died, stood still. What happened was, these men of Judah, as they passed by, and as they saw one of their sons dead, they were grieved in the heart, and they stood still. Now there is a lull, but there is only a lull. The real problem hasn't been sorted out in all of this. Who is the real king? You see, the whole issue here is, People, men, are not submitting to God's anointed. As I say and emphasize once again, 
many of the problems in the church. Sometimes it's ignorance. It's ignorance of God's Word. Sometimes we, we may come from a background and we've not been well taught. I can accept that. We've all need to be taught the truth. But what happens, friends, when truth is revealed, do we submit to it? Things like the Scripture says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, submit to those who rule over you. Who said that? The Lord Jesus. And if you do not submit to those who rule over you, who are you not bowing to? It's not that you're not bowing to me. It's you're not bowing to the Lord Jesus. He determines what the rules are. He says what goes. He speaks about his day that needs to be honored. It is his church who is head of the church. Jesus Christ is, isn't he? That's the issue. Nobody here is head of the church. I don't call the shots. Nobody does. But the Lord does. And the, the real issue is, most instances of problems in churches is that people do not submit to the Lord. And that is because they have too high an opinion of themselves. Just like Abner. We think we know better. But it led to his death. He thought he was going to be the head honcho. But it led to his death. And his destruction. And it led to civil war in, 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 in Israel. Didn't it? All the trouble came because of this man. And because he says, I will anoint my king. And that's what everybody in their own heart says. I will be Lord of my life, not Jesus Christ. That's the problem, isn't it? If we will all but humble ourselves and kiss the sun, there is a lull, but the problem isn't sorted out. These two men come together and they decide this is not good. But they just go their separate ways. And sadly, many people leave churches and never sort out the problem. Never. Never sort out the issues. And that's what you have here. There's a quiet, there's a lull. But let me say this, there's no peace with God. The rest of Israel had no peace with God. One tribe is submitting. But the rest don't. Joab agrees to this ceasefire. Verse 28, So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued Israel no more, neither fought they any more. Still be a long time now before many acknowledge David. And you notice the numbers are counted up here. And you notice how chapter 3 begins. Now there was long war, chapter 3 verse 1, between the house of Saul and the house of David. So there's a lull, but the problem hasn't gone away. And you know, so often this is the case, I must say. The Scriptures say, Whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, but they're also written for our learning. And we need to learn here. We have to sort things out, because God is not there where his people don't honor him. 
The problem hasn't been removed. There was a long wall, seven years. And David, what does he do? Does David get in and say, I'm king? No. David humbly waits on the Lord. And so it was for our Lord Jesus when he came to this world. Did he come round? It says in the Scriptures that his voice was not heard in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. Thank the Lord. He said, come and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And we must learn from him in all of our ways to be gentle, but to be firm. We've got to be firm about the truth. The truth is non-negotiable. Hear what I'm saying. If we do not walk in the truth, we will never know God's blessing. God's people are not to be dragged into the church. I don't ever believe it's ever right to drag people to become church members. Never. I don't believe it's ever right to drag people to be baptized. He says, my people shall be made willing in the day of my power. He does the work. He renews the heart, the mind, the will, and the affections. And you see, there's no peace until we're resolved, like David, that we're going to do the Lord's will. David began in prayer, and when God revealed it to him, David did not shift but waited as long as it was necessary to have that blessing from God. And they that wait on the Lord, David says, shall not want any good thing. No, they won't. You know, we've got to submit to God's Word. God's Word is final, it's authoritative, but if men will not submit to it, His ordained leadership, His ways and His will We've got to expect trouble. And let me say this. There are times, men and women, you've got to stand up even against God's ministers. And I'm saying that as a minister here. When something is wrong, you've got to say, this is not what the Scriptures say. And you've got to stand on that. Because your loyalty is not to me. Let me emphasize that. Your loyalty is is not to me. I don't care about me. But we must care about him and what he says and yield to Jesus Christ. It is about loyalty to the Lord's anointed. That was the problem here in Israel and it is in the true spiritual Israel of God so often it is the case. We're not here to please ourselves but we're here to please him. That was what Abner was about, and he met with his demise. One final lesson. How wonderful it is when there is peace. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Is like the 
precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. What we learn from that psalm is, where there is peace, the Lord commands the blessing. Without that, settled disposition, me as a minister, you as God's people, if we are not determined to do God's will, there is going to be unrest. Plug that into every area of your life, my friend, because it's true. On a personal level, but also on a level of a church. The Lord will bring his people into submission finally to his anointed. Where there is unity, Paul says, endeavor to seek to keep the unity through the Spirit. It is by the Spirit of God, as we yield to his word, that we will have peace. The Lord will command the blessing there. We are not our own. The glory is his. Not ours. I'm not here to push my will. I never want to do that. Never. And I hope none of you want to do that. We sow to the Spirit. Micah 6, 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. See how humbly... David is walking, and the peace that soon he will enjoy as king over Israel. I came across a lovely quote this morning by Count Zissendorf. He said this, I am as ever a poor sinner, a captive of his eternal love, running by the side of his triumphant chariot, and I have no desire to be anything else as long as I live. Do you get the imagery? The Lord is riding on in victory. And we are just happy to run alongside his chariot and to be at peace with our God, to walk with him. He says, I have no desire to be anything else as long as I live. And that's where we should be. He is the king. And we run with him. And we follow in his ways. May the Lord give us peace. And those who do not know the Lord Jesus, let me just say, friend, lay down your arms. The scriptures say, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish in the way. But blessed are they that put their trust in him. Stop seeking to earn the righteousness of your own. Look to the righteousness of God that is through Jesus Christ. And there you will have peace. Let me say this. You cannot know the peace of God that passes all understanding unless you know peace with God through the Lord Jesus. There are two kinds of peace. The first you've got to have is peace with God through Jesus Christ. God reconciled his people to himself by the death of his dear son. And what he does by that is he then comes to indwell our hearts by giving us his spirit and making us to walk in a new life where we say, he is king. I'm going to follow alongside his chariot. 
And I'm only too happy to be there. May God have glory and power in our lives. Amen.